with my voice. You're we on. good? Okay. So, so everyone good? Hear me? Awesome. Uh, some of you might be looking up here saying, didn't we get rid of that guy? Uh, some of you might not know who I am. So let me give you a, uh, a quick recap. So like Pastor Michael said, uh, I grew up with this family. Seaford, it's so good to see you. Uh, I went off uh, to seminary in 2009 uh, and finished at Southeastern in 2013. Uh, met my beautiful bride, Kimmy, and really we've been serving a, a wonderful church in Raleigh and working there ever since. So in the Lord's providence, he has brought us back to the 757, and we're really excited to have been able to connect with Catalyst Church, uh, there by Christopher Newport University. Uh, Pastor Daniel Tripp with his wife Kristen are there, and we've been able to plug in, and also I've been able to reconnect with Will Cornett and some of the pastors that are a part of this pillar network that Seaford is now a part of, and it's, it's just been wonderful to see uh, how Seaford is doing and just the solid churches that are in this area. And like Pastor Michael said, I have been able to reconnect with him. And I've, I've got to tell you all, I think he might have been, you know, misleading us a little bit, thinking he's around 40. I think this brother's like 300 years old, eats his veggies, but this guy preaches like it's 1723. I mean, he brings the gospel like it is about to be the third great awakening. And that is a huge blessing. And like he said, I, I told you, he took my introduction. Uh, I asked him if I could just follow along in the book of Acts. So we're going to be in Acts 11, verses 1 through 18 today. So go ahead and open your Bibles and get there with me. And while you're doing that, I, I really think as I was preparing and, and listening to all these sermons, it, it really made me think of the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. And I know that might apply to me at the end of the sermon, but, but really, we've all kind of been there with this idea of you're bringing a message to a group of people, whether it's a boss, whether it's a parent, and you're not too certain how the outcome is going to be. And that is what we're going to find today in this text. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Fellowship of the Ring, The Lord of the Rings. And, and if you've seen that movie or read the books, you remember that Gandalf, the, the wizard, he finds the one ring with Frodo. And everyone's really looking to Gandalf for leadership. They're like, this thing's happened. Frodo's like, I don't know what to do. Gandalf, you need to do something. And Gandalf's like, all right, well, I know what to do. I'm going to go to my mentor, and I'm going to ask his advice. And I'm going to just do whatever he tells me to do. So if you've seen the movie, you know that the outcome of that is he goes to his mentor. And what happens is his mentor has actually turned to the dark side. So he finds that not only does he not get the advice that he was wanting, but that he's the one with the burden of leadership uh, for what to do with this one ring. And that would be an example that I can think of of someone who's bringing a message and the outcome isn't as good. Uh, in, the book, um, in the book, The Speed of Trust by David Sokol, shout out to Tim and Sawyer Marshall for the book recommendation, there's a story of a guy by the name of David Sokol. And David, he ran his own business, but what happened to his business is it came underneath Berkshire Hathaway. Now, if anyone knows business, they know that Berkshire Hathaway is owned by Warren Buffett. So he brings his company underneath Warren Buffett's company, and, and what happens is he ends up losing $360 million in a business transaction. So, so this guy, David, after doing this, he has to bring this news to Warren Buffett, 
and he's packing up his desk, getting that, you know, stereotypical box with all his stuff. He's walking into Warren Buffett's office. And listen to what Warren Buffett says. He says, David, we all make mistakes. If you can't make mistakes, you can't make decisions. I've made a lot bigger mistakes myself. The meeting was over in 10 minutes. $360 million forgiven. That is an example of a good outcome of bringing a message to somebody. So today, Peter is going to be bringing a message to the founding church, the Jerusalem church, and based on the amount of evidence that he brings, you could kind of determine that he wasn't too sure what the outcome was going to be. So again, we're in Acts 11, starting in verse 1. I'll go ahead and read it, and you follow along with me. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house, and and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your entire household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you now in the power of the Holy Spirit, um, in the name of Jesus Christ, just thanking you for this text before us. Father, I thank you for the honor that it is to be able to open your word. Father, if I say anything that is unglorifying to you, would you just erase it from all of our minds? And Father, we just want to seek your glory from this and give you all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So I believe, uh, I agree rather with Tony Morita, who says that this text it serves as a resolution to what is the, the longest narrative that we're seeing in the book of Acts, okay? So the resolution is that we've already seen that the gospel has been officially gone to the Gentiles. It's been legitimated through the visions of Cornelius and Peter. So we're actually getting a third rendition of this story. So the primary point of the story today isn't necessarily to, to, to have the main idea be the message of that. So, but the main idea from the text, I would say, is that the truth of the gospel going to the Gentiles is confirmed by Peter's testimony to the Jerusalem church. Okay? But I want to re-emphasize that the entire narrative here, as Pastor Michael has preached, has two primary points. And that's the gospel has officially gone to the Gentiles. It's been legitimated as going to the Gentiles by the Holy Spirit filling this group of people and by Peter's authentication. Now, we know this, this isn't necessarily anything new. Like, the gospel has been going to the Gentiles really since the Old Testament and in Jesus' ministry, okay? So if we've, been, if we've been following along, we know this. But now the gospel is being legitimated by Peter's testimony. And, and really the second big point is that we can all eat bacon now. Like all these animals on this sheet is showing that the Old Testament said no bacon. And now it's saying, no, bacon's okay. Let's keep moving forward, okay? So that's like a good application point. But as we're moving forward now, we want to reemphasize that the Holy Spirit is still confirming what's going on and leading the charge. All right, we're seeing that in verse 12. We also see that this is a hinge point in the book of Acts. So after this, we're going to see a shift from the original 12 apostles to, uh, to really the, the ministry of Paul. But as we're thinking about all this, and I know the mic is kind of coming at me here, so I think that's better. Um, as, we're, as we're seeing this hinge point shift, this is kind of the, the final call of the early apostles. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. The main idea of the sermon that I would like to portray is that the truth of the gospel changes individuals, and we'll see that in Peter, changes people groups, and we'll see that in the Jewish believers, and it changes the world, and we'll see that with the Gentiles. Okay, the truth of the gospel changes individuals, people groups, and the world. The main application for today, and we're going to talk about this later, is that a Christian's testimony reinforces the truth of the gospel to themselves, and gives legitimate evidence of that truth to others. Okay, I think on the screen, though, we just see the main idea. So the first word before we jump into the text that I think is important to talk about is this idea of truth. Now, I know you're kind of looking at me, you're like, whoa, like we're going to get a little heady here, like philosophy. I know the church has been going through theology week, so I think you're like a little bit prepped for this conversation. Uh, but really, when we think about it, whenever anybody is giving any kind of testimony— whether it's me bringing a testimony of the word to you now, whether it's someone going to court bringing a testimony, whether it's bringing a testimony to your parent, telling something that your sibling did, the listener's primary objective is what? That it's true. Is this testimony true? So listen to how Plato defines testimony, or defines truth. He defines truth as the correspondence between a belief and reality. Now, my good friend Aaron Schaefer is here with his son Barrett, and, and one of the things that Aaron and I did in seminary is like many seminarians, we would sit at a gas station and eat $1 hot dogs, and we'd pontificate on big ideas, okay? So as Aaron and I were pontificating over a dollar hot dog one day, we thought about this idea of truth, and we came up with what I thought was a pretty good definition. 
We, we came up with the definition that truth is that which pertains to reality. And I know you're still asking me, like, Bobby, why in the world are we talking about this? A point that we need to make is that we as Christians, those who profess to be Christians, actually believe things can be true. Now, our society and even some of our friends can sometimes deny absolute truth, but we realize the contradiction of their denial when they want truth to happen in, like, a court of law or when they get in their car and, and they obey basic laws of physics. And that's important that we all say, hey, there are actually things that are true, and if someone's bringing us a testimony, just like you're hearing me now, you need to determine whether or not it is true. Okay? So that's the first word. The second word is gospel. So one might ask, well, okay, all well and good, what does Jesus say about this idea of truth? Well, interestingly, it goes undefined. And I literally mean that. Jesus is asked to define truth, and he does not define it. Listen to this. John 18, 37 through 38. It says, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? So we see here that Pilate actually shows an example of someone who is face to face with the king of the universe. And when confronted by him, saying that he is the truth, he asks a seemingly important and philosophical question. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't even answer it. And that, that's probably not meaning that Jesus couldn't answer it, that he didn't know the definition. What it's, what it's showing is that this guy, he's, he's face-to-face with the truth, and, and Jesus knows that he's kind of shifting away, that he's denying it. Listen to John 14, 5 through 6. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are, where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, what we see from these two verses is that Jesus is not as concerned about defining truth, but, but, but to emphasize when he's asked that out of all of the things that are true in this world, that he is the truth. In Romans 10, 9, and, and if you're here today and you're just visiting or, or you came to see me or or, or you haven't been to church in a while, really just this is the one takeaway I want you to get. Is that Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he is raised from the dead, you will be saved. That is the foundation of the gospel that we believe. That we confess that there is nothing that we can do in ourselves to earn favor with God. And that God's wrath is actually on sinners who were not atoned for their sin by the blood of Jesus. So when we confess, we confess that truth and we believe that it is real. And we ask God to save us from our sin so that we can have eternal fellowship with him through Jesus. That's it. That's the message. That's the same gospel that has gone to the Gentiles in this text. So, so as we think about those two things, truth and gospel, the third word is testimony, and we're going to see that going all through this text. So let's go ahead and jump in. Verses one through three. Point one, the truth of the gospel 
changes individuals. And we're going to see that in Peter. It says, Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, I know some of you might have some different translations today. Uh, I think this is uh, uh, the ESV translators. If you have an ESV version like I'm reading, just giving a perfect opportunity for a joke for a pastor with the circumcision party thing. Like, think about being a part of a party of the circumcision. Uh, the NIV is, is more so saying that this is a group of circumcised believers. So uh, the NASB is saying circumcised believers as well. So it, this probably, as Howard Marshall would say, wasn't like an official group of, of circumcised believers forming a party. But, but what it is, is it's a, a group of, of Christians who haven't quite figured out how to apply the, the concepts of Judaism as people are being saved. And, and Pastor Michael has, has talked about this and explained this really, really well. Um, and they go on and they say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, why are they saying this, okay? I know this is kind of easy for us to kind of jump on these supposed curmudgeons, and we're like, these are kind of like the bad guys at the time. But there's a reason they're saying this. So I wanted to give them a shot to defend themselves. So in in Leviticus 20, starting in verse 25, it says, and this is God talking, "You you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Point one to the circumcised party. I mean, this seems to say, like, wouldn't it be wise, therefore, that we not even associate with anything that might make us unholy? But friends, what we need to notice is that the Old Testament never calls the Hebrew people to to never associate with the Gentiles. Check this verse out, Exodus 19, 6. It says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we have to think about what what did it mean to be a priest among the Hebrew people? Well, the priests, they taught and they led the people. So for Israel to be called a kingdom of priests, who are they going to teach? Unless it's the Gentiles. Listen to what what Kenneth Harris says about this. He says, when the Lord calls Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, he's not referring exclusively to the role that Aaron and his sons will fill as priests, but also to what Israel's life as a whole is to represent among the nations. By keeping the covenant, the people of Israel would continue both to set themselves apart from and also to mediate the presence and blessing of the Lord to the nations around them. Friends, this shows us the continuity of our God, that he has always loved those who seek his truth. And none other than Jesus, he does his thing when he clarifies what God's intentions were here in in Luke 10, 29-37, and we're not going to read that, but there's the story of the Good Samaritan. And someone asked Jesus, well, who then is my neighbor that I should love? Because if you go back to the Old Testament, 
the thing about loving your neighbor seems to say that it could only be the Jewish people. But Jesus clarifies by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, who is a Gentile that helps a Jewish brother when the priest and the Levite, two of the leaders in Judaism, pass him by. And friends, Jesus' point here is that it's always been God's intention for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. So, so really two points from these first three verses as we think about this circumcision party, okay? One, do we absolutize supposed wisdom at the cost of the gospel? Now, I know there are many brothers and sisters here who have been believers for a long time, and you might know like the stories of Billy Graham, even, who would, who would famously take televisions out of his hotel rooms so as not to even be tempted, uh, really, to look at anything unclean. Um, we know of other practices we put in place, some with, with alcohol, some with just any other means to, to keep far from sin. And, and friends, I'm not saying that we do away with, with wisdom and practicing this type of wisdom. But let's heed the warning. Of, the bro- of these brothers in, in the early church that they actually were hindering forwarding the gospel by making a, a man-made rule that really God wasn't calling them to follow. And in the other idea here, Pastor Daniel Tripp helped me with this as I was preparing the sermon, is found in verse 12. And Pastor Michael's talked about this before. When the Holy Spirit calls Peter to go without making distinctions— And this is probably one of the most practical ways that that we kind of rule certain peoples or places out of of sharing the gospel. And and I think as we really reflect on our own hearts, and mine as well, there's probably a certain place or maybe a certain person that when you think about them and you think about that they're really not saved, but man, that's just, just off limits for me. God is certainly not telling me to go to them. And friends, that this text is, is showing us that, no, we, we need to be open to not make distinctions. And, and it also highlights the intimacy of a meal. Like, Peter was going and eating with people. And that's sometimes the same scenario today. And, and Pastor Michael made the point, would we invite certain people into our home for a meal? And that, again, that is not condoning the sin. But are, are we going to make a distinction that would cause them to, to not even be able to hear the truth? So those are the two points to take away from these, these circumcised guys, okay? So, so I know you're, what you're kind of thinking. Um, we're only on verse 3. The next set of verses is actually going to go pretty quickly, okay? So the point of this retelling of the story, again, is that the Jerusalem church um, understand Peter's testimony. So from verses 4 to 17 we're going to see, um, really, that Peter's going to give a lot of evidence of what has happened is true. And you're actually going to see some relatability between Peter and his audience. So so let's just jump in. Verse 4, it says that as Peter was explaining these things, that he explained them in order. And that's actually very Lucan. We believe Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in the beginning of Luke, it actually says that he's going to bring this testimony of Jesus in order. And really all that's saying is that Peter was ready to explain the things that happened, so they made sense. Okay, verse 6, Peter actually adds to the set of animals on the sheet, beasts of prey. 
Now, why does he do that? It's kind of a minor point, but what he's doing is he's actually giving a more literal translation from the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verse 24, and this was the exact language the book of Genesis used to describe some of these unclean animals. So Peter's actually saying, like, there's continuity here between what God is doing and what we're doing here. Verse 9, the voice answers Peter twice. Okay, so when Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do it, he's like, this voice talks to me again, everybody. Verse 10, the sheet ascends and descends, what? Three times. For those of us who have a little bit of biblical literacy, we know that Peter struggled with this number three. Jesus asked him three times if he loved him. He denied Jesus three times. So this number has some significance. Verse 11, three men arrived from Caesarea. Verse 12, six additional witnesses. Now these were witnesses that we saw in verse, or in chapter 10 rather, go with Peter to Cornelius' house. So these were actually Jewish Christians. And, and we see actually from the book of Deuteronomy, only two witnesses were required uh, to make a testimony legitimate. So, so Peter's saying, I've got six witnesses plus me, seven. Seven's also a significant number in Scripture, and we don't want to dig too much into those details. But, but Peter's clearly trying to relate to his audience, and he's trying to bring as much evidence as he can. Verse 15, Peter brings some experiential evidence. It says that the Holy Spirit fell on them, what? Just as on us at the beginning. And what Peter's referring to, he's referring to Pentecost. And he's saying, what I, what I saw happen there seemed to be the exact same thing that happened to us, everybody. And then the coup de grace, verse 16, quotes Jesus. Quote Jesus, usually, you know, people might listen, right? He says that Jesus said, and, and he's really quoting Jesus from Acts 1-5, that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And this phrasing of, of John baptizing with water and uh, the disciples being baptized in the Holy Spirit actually occurs in all four Gospels. So whenever we see something happening in all, the, all four of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, there's, it doesn't make it more important than other parables or other teachings, but it does bring a certain um, level of, okay, listen up, like this is something that's been repeated. So Peter's bringing all of this evidence to the early church. And it's like, well, okay, great. Like, what does that have to do with us? Well, one basic thing we can think about is that God has revealed himself to us, bringing us evidence of himself. It says in Psalm 19.1 in the New Living Translation that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Friends, if, if you want to know God exists, all we have to do is walk outside and look up. And we call that general revelation, that God has revealed himself to us, giving evidence of himself in, in just the ordinary things of life, in the creation that he has made. The second form of revelation we find in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. And what that means is that God has given us his word to give us specific instructions in this life. And friends, that's just something to, to praise God about, that he has not left us without evidence of himself in this world. We also see 
in Peter's relatedness to this group of people that he really isn't above some of their distinctions. We can all remember Galatians 2, and Pastor Michael's talked about this, when Peter literally is um, scolded by Paul by getting up from fellowship with the Gentiles to sit with the Jewish believers. So Peter here really, he's, he's trying to relate, and, and he's not trying to put himself above the Jerusalem church, who's really just trying to figure these things out. And, and really, that's a good thing for us to look at for, for a leader. You know, we, we might ask ourselves, why is God using this Peter guy? What, why does this Peter guy seem to keep coming up time and time again? And what makes his testimony particularly legitimate for what God is doing? Well, listen what, uh, to what J. Van Engen says about the, the leadership of Peter. And there's this kind of fancy theological term that's out there. It's called the primacy of Peter. And when you hear that term, all it really means is the leadership of Peter that's found in the Bible. Um, certain denominations have taken that word a little too far to give Peter too much significance. But, but we can look at the scripture and we can see that Peter actually is given a, a pretty significant role in the scriptures. Um, just a quick list. Peter was among some of the first apostles called. He appears first in all biblical lists. He became one of three in an inner circle with Christ. He was probably the first apostle to see the resurrected Christ. He repeatedly served as spokesman for the apostles. He represented their collective desertion. It actually named Peter when they deserted him, but actually all of the apostles deserted Christ. He was the first to confess Jesus as Messiah. He preached at Pentecost. He received this vision that we're talking about right now. He will be the decisive speaker at the Jerusalem Council in uh, chapter 15. And, and if you remember, Paul actually visited Peter after he was converted um, to be taught and kind of brought up to speed. So, so what are we taking away from this? Well, well, God sometimes shines a spotlight or uses certain people for a certain purpose, and we see that in Peter right now. And again, Pastor Daniel Tripp helped me think through this um, as we were looking at the text. Um, God gives us leaders as well. Praise God for Pastor Ben and Pastor Michael who've given of their lives to this church. And, and we, in a, in a similar way, like the Jerusalem church is doing here, we can go to them as our leaders when we have questions or concerns about matters of life or, or even doctrine in the Bible. And I know from experience in talking with these guys that they're not going to say that they know everything. But I know that they are diligently studying the word so that they can be prepared to give a response when we come to them. So, so friends, if, if you're here today and you might just be ashamed of, of something that's going on, God has graciously given us leaders in our churches to go to. So I would just encourage you to, to take advantage of that. It's God-given. And, and another aspect of, of Peter here, actually, this is one of the last times we're going to see Peter in a major role in the Bible. Yes, we're going to see him in a, in a go to prison in the next couple of chapters and at the Jerusalem Council, but really, after this, the spotlight shifts majorly away from all 12 of the early apostles. And a takeaway from that is sometimes the, sometimes the spotlight just goes away from certain leaders. Or maybe we're sitting here today and we're saying, listen, I've, 
I've never had the spotlight on me. And friends, I just want to encourage you that it could be that God is doing a work in your ministry and you might never receive the spotlight. So so take that encouragement that just because people like Peter are, are used for a specific purpose doesn't mean that God isn't using you for a specific purpose. And also, you might have once had the spotlight and now it's gone away. And that's okay too. Because friends, the apostles, they didn't stop working for Christ after the spotlight was gone. We hear about that all throughout tradition. I gotta keep going. Point two, the truth of the gospel changes people groups. Back up real quick, verse 17. We actually see Peter's personal response. Okay, so so let's jump down to, to 17. And it says, If then God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So what do we see here? We see that Peter believed and he took action. What was that action? That action was going to Cornelius to share with him the message and then coming back to a bunch of curmudgeons and telling them, listen guys, this thing's actually happening. And this is, again, a good point for us to take away. That believer or non-believer, when you are confronted with a truth, whether through a sermon or through a friend, the means of applying it is taking action. That's what James means in the book of James when he says, faith without works is dead. It's not saying that our faith is created by our works, is legitimated by our works. It is saying that our works are evidence of that faith. And it is evident that, Peter, that Peter's actions were showing that he believed what was going on. So let's keep going. The truth of the gospel changes people groups. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Now, if anyone is married or has been married or had any significant relationship, you know that whenever you're in a, we'll call it, an intense conversation with your spouse— at certain points, one might fall silent. And sometimes what that means, and at least when Kimmy says something and I fall silent, that just means she's got me, that I am wrong. And in that moment, I can either choose to take the evidence that she's given me and apply it, or I can get madder and keep going. And unfortunately, that latter part is usually what I choose to do. Listen to, uh, in 1 Kings And I don't think this one's going to be on the screen, but in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, is the account of Elijah by himself. Oh, we got it. Good job. Go team. So Elijah is on Mount Carmel by himself uh, opposing the prophets of Baal. And And listen to this exchange. It says, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people didn't answer a word. What's the answer of the Jerusalem church? Well, it says, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. Friends, what better response is there than to glorify God when we're confronted with a truth. 
for those of you who, who might have not given your life to Christ yet, what, what better thing to happen than to glorify God and repent? For those of us who have been believers for a long time and, and, and a faithful friend comes to us and reveals maybe some sin pattern they're seeing in our life, glorify God and repent and say, I can be better. Friends, this is, this is a great thing that we have been benefited from the decision of the early church to hear what Peter said and to glorify God and say what? Point three. Then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted eternal life. Now, friends, I, I've been extremely encouraged to hear with uh, what Seaford has been doing going to the nations. Um, I've, I've like Pastor Michael said, I've listened to the entire Acts series, and I've heard um, how you are commissioning missionaries. I've heard how you are partnering with um, the women's clinics in this area. And I just, I want to use this opportunity to just encourage you and to just tell you to, to keep going with this. And, and when we look at this word Gentile, that, that, the, word, that, the, that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, we, we know that the word Gentile, well, the Greek root is this word goi, what that really means is nation. So really what, what they're confessing here in this text that anyone who is not Jewish now has access to the gospel. And I'm just taking a wild guess here. I, I would probably say at least 95 to 100% of us in this room fall in that category. So we are direct results of the Jerusalem church making this positive affirmation. And that's something to rejoice in. We are a direct fulfillment of Acts 1-8 about the gospel going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus calls us to go. And like I just said, I've been super encouraged hearing about what you are doing, what other churches are doing in this area. And I just wanted to bring two quick encouragements for anyone in the room who's, who's just thinking about, okay, well, what is something that I can do? as far as taking the gospel to the nations, because it's a pretty high task that Pastor Michael keeps telling me to do like week in and week out. And I think Michael's given a lot of good advice. Um, two of the things that uh, we've applied in our lives is just think about the areas or circles of influence in your life. And this was something that at Imago Dei Church, they, they encouraged us to do. So we all have circles of influence of people in our lives all around us, whether it's family, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's the marketplace, maybe a gas station or restaurant that you continue to frequent, whether it's your workplace, coworkers, And we also all have to admit that there are certain places that we adult play, that we go some places for fun, whether it's a pool hall, whether it's a bar, I don't know. But there are people there in your circles of influence who, who you really have direct access to that not many other people do in this church. So that's just an encouragement. Just, just begin by, by thinking about that. And, and another encouragement is, this is something I've incorporated in my life um, on, a, on weekdays in the mornings to go to this app. It's called the Unreached People Group of the Day, and it's by the Joshua Project. And, and what it is is it really just describes a people group that has limited access to the gospel. And it will give you a quick biography of this people group, and it will literally give you a prayer to pray over this people group. And what I found that has done is it's more so changed my heart to world missions 
that as I do that on a daily basis, my heart is more tuned to think about how the gospel is going forward. So I just, I just hold those things out to you. And as we're closing down here, I'll go ahead and invite the band uh, back up. And we'll move into the primary application of the text, which is that the Christian's testimony reinforces the truth of the gospel in themselves and gives legitimate evidence of that truth to others. So first point, it reinforces the truth of the gospel in ourselves. So you might be sitting here and you're like, well, what is a Christian testimony? Well, all a Christian testimony is, is it's an account that we have of knowing how the Lord saved us. So we all can remember like where we were on 9-11 if we were alive then. I think some of us might have been alive and remember where we were when, or where you were, rather, when Kennedy was shot. I wasn't alive then. Or where we were when our first child was born, or where we were when we were married. But really, if, if believers are honest, some can't necessarily pinpoint the exact moment that they were saved. Okay? But that's okay. But what I would encourage us to do is I would encourage us to look back and see how God worked in our lives and to kind of see the time frame of which we were saved. There's a famous story of C.S. Lewis who says he was on his way to a destination. And what he knows is that before he reached that destination, he was not a Christian. But after he reached that destination, he accepted Christ. And I'm an example of that myself. I was raised in this church and I know I was saved when Pastor Richard sat down with me before my baptism and walked me through the gospel. And, and I probably had an understanding of the gospel before that, but I know that that pastor would not let me be dunked before he knew I understood the gospel. And friends, that's just a reminder that there is no unextraordinary testimony. Pastor Donnie Hollis at Imago Dei Church re-emphasized this point to us so well that some of us might be here and we're like, man, like God didn't save me from a drug habit or from, from prison or something. And if you have that testimony, praise God as well. That can be used in so many ways. But friends, like our testimony, we can trace the miraculous nature of it if we really think about it. For me, it was being part of a faithful church and having a faithful mom who would bring me to church. Having a faithful youth pastor who, who literally poured his life into us. Having faithful men and women for, for me to look up to. And having a faithful pastor who, who believed the word so convictionally that he wouldn't just for numbers sake dunk a kid before he knew that I understood the gospel. God worked miraculously through my testimony. And I praise him for it. The second application point, thanks for standing, everybody, is that we allow our testimony to be a legitimate tool in evangelism as we go. So a couple of times, Pastor Michael has mentioned the uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses how, and given good practical advice about how we can uh, witness to them and, and counteract some of their false theology. But one of the things that a, like a Mormon might do is they'll say, well, I've got this burning in my bosom. And this, I can't ignore this, this experience that I've had. And what we as Christians do is, is we'll kind of look at that and we'll be like, oh man, when I share my testimony, it kind of seems subjective like that. That is, isn't someone just going to say, well, that's, that's your own experience? And our answer is, yes, it was my experience. 
But friends, unlike the Mormons, we have so much legitimate hermeneutical evidence from the Bible to back our testimony. We have legitimate evidence of the resurrection of Christ. We have a way to understand truth in our lost world. God has revealed himself to us in nature. Friends, our testimony is backed by extraordinary evidence. So I just want to encourage us that maybe, maybe you're here and you're like, well, I don't know all of these grand theological arguments. And so, so when I go out there, I'm not equipped to, to answer all these questions. That's why God has revealed himself to you individually to share your testimony with others. I would not have us, uh, God would not have us shy away from how he has saved us. And as we go, may, maybe we can think about that, that business executive who, who lost that $360 million. Friends, as we go, we, we acknowledge humbly that we've been forgiven a debt much larger than $360 million. We've been forgiven a sin debt by an almighty and holy and loving God that is so great we could never pay it. But Christ has. So may we go with that spirit. And for those of you who, um, 